This is the Image Podcast, where we talk to poets and writers, filmmakers, musicians, and visual artists who grapple with the mystery at the heart of religious experience. In this episode, we'll meet Malcolm Geit and Scott Cairns. Geit is a priest, poet, songwriter, and chaplain of Girton College, Cambridge. He's also served as a chaplain at our Glen Workshops in Santa Fe. I came to know Geit's work through the online community Sick Pilgrim, where his book, Sounding the Seasons, a collection of sonnets inspired by the liturgical year, is much beloved. The artists in Sick Pilgrim, many of whom are struggling to make sense of their Christian faith in the context of their work, also love the figure of Geit himself. To give you an idea why, he's been described as what you might get if John Donne journeyed to Middle Earth by way of San Francisco, took musical cues from Jerry Garcia and fashion tips from Bilbo Baggins, and rode back on a Harley. Geit is the author of five books of poetry, including two chapbooks and three full-length collections. His book, Mariner, is a biography of Samuel Taylor Coleridge, shaped and structured around the story he told in his most famous poem, The Rime of the Ancient Mariner. The tablet predicted it would become a classic of Christian spirituality. Scott Cairns has said that Coleridge is a poet he remains in conversation with when he writes. He's one of the dead poets he says he keeps on his desk. Cairns's eight books of poetry include Idiot Psalms and Slow Pilgrim. He's an editorial advisor to Image and the director of the MFA program at Seattle Pacific University, and his poems and essays have appeared in many of our issues. He's also the author of one of the books that stays on my writing desk, The End of Suffering, Finding Purpose in Pain. Cairns said in an interview that he no longer looks at poetry as an expressive art, but more as a way of knowing. He puts words on the page, trusting the language will lead into seeing something he hadn't anticipated. Both Geit and Cairns open up new ways of thinking about what it means to be an artist of faith. David Jennings brought them together in Santa Fe to read from their work and to talk about the enduring influence of Coleridge, their mutual obsession with time, and how writing and reading poetry can help us to heal experiences of bad church. So the question I'd like to ask you today, because both of you really are, in the true sense, uh, theologians, in that you care, think, and write deeply about this, your view of Scripture and the written word, how does that affect your idea of what poetry should do and how you engage with it? Well, I think, you, obviously, if you're a poet and your metier is words and your medium is, is this miraculous thing called language, you're going to be deeply attracted to those two great beginnings in the beginning in Genesis and in the beginning in John's Gospel, in both of which... The beautiful plurality of things in which we rejoice is spoken into being, you know, so that let there be, and it is, that's what every poet dreams might happen. (laughs) That's kind of what we're aiming for. And then in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. So the fact that we have not only a scripture, but that, of course, the scripture itself is not our salvation and it's not Christ. The word of God is Jesus Christ. But... The, all the other words, I mean, there's a great thing Luther said, I think, that, that you know, the New Old and the New Testament are like the, the swaddling bands with which Mary wrapped the baby Jesus, that the point about them is that they bring us to this living word. So at least in the scriptures, apart from a sense that we've been given an inspired text, 
we have the continuous example of words that gesture beyond themselves towards a living word. And we're kind of, we are at least trying to move inside that terrain and work yeah. within those parameters. Of course, I think I would never say, that I don't think any writing that a Christian poet, however, in, in whatever inverted commas you want to use, or however inspired they were, is to be in any way compared at an existential level with what has been given to us in the unfolding of the scriptures. But I do think that the unfolding of the scriptures is itself not only a generous gift of God that we should have these, but it is generative, that it constantly generates new things. Scott. Exactly. <laughs> but, but because there was a time when I, I guess I was a, a Christian of a sort and, and a poet of a sort. And at a certain point early on, they seemed, those concerns seemed to diverge. But then at another point, I can't even tell you why or how, but the divergence began to correct. And I found, uh, and I think it had a lot to do with my grappling with how scriptures had been taught to me as a boy. As, uh, and I know that some of us have talked about this uh, before, but you know, the sense that the scriptures, as I was taught, had a meaning behind them. The, the text was in a way a sign pointing to the thing, the truth behind the words. And, and in some cases, the words appeared to be treated as if they were obstacles to the mm -hmm. thing. That there was this deep, singular truth that was the real goal of why we read the scriptures, to move through the scriptures to get a thing. Mm -hmm. And um, being a poet, I knew that's not how language mm -hmm. works. Yeah. Right. And, and so being a, a boy in church who mm -hmm. also loved poetry, and I had a pretty good sense of what made a poem a poem when I was a boy, even because I had a father who recited Robert Frost to me, and mm -hmm. my mind would go off all over the place whenever he would end a line, and then be called back to the poem at the beginning of the next line. And you know, I just I loved that the effect of the language sending me off in my own imagination and then calling me back to the poem with mm -hmm. with the next line. Well. So at a point then, I thought, who, who thinks of language the way I think of language? And, and it, it turns out a lot of people do. You know, a lot of people have. <laughs> and most of them were Jews. And in fact, uh, rabbinic texts, if you've spent any time with rabbinic genres of biblical commentary, <clears throat> you see that this whole notion of the word as a generative, having a generative yeah. agency yeah. is so key to how yeah. they open the scriptures. Mm. You know, like there'd be a great little anecdote about Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Jacob are pouring over a text, arguing about what it means, and then Rabbi Isaiah walks in and they go, tell us what this means. And so the story being that they're looking, they're pouring over the Torah scroll, they're looking at a particular text, it's clearly open, literally, mm -hmm. but the line is, Rabbi Isaiah opened the text. Mm. You know, he opened what was open right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> into more right. opening. And it's, it's that so drew my imagination and the whole approach to the, the particular rabbinical, rabbinic uh, genre of midrashim mm. were, were a, the incommensurate passages are the ones that they were drawn to, the ones that didn't make sense with what they presumed to be so, 
those are the ones that drew their attention. Mm. Uh, the dark sayings. Yeah. Um, I will show forth my dark sayings upon the harp. You know, that's one of the great lines yeah. in the sun. So you open. The rabbis did what, what my pastors never did, which is look for the hard parts mm. and study them. Yeah. Right. Uh, because when I was a kid, if we came to a hard part, we skipped it. You know, if it didn't suit what the, yeah. I guess yeah. what was expected to be taught that day, yeah. we just skipped over those passages and went to the ones that sort of fit. And uh, as a kid, that was somewhat unsatisfying, but as an adult, that became absolutely dissatisfying. And I, uh, I was almost, you know, for a little while there, I was studying with a rabbi in uh, Norfolk, Virginia, to uh, maybe even take classes for conversion. <laughs> yeah. but, but then I came upon St. Isaac of Syria, right. who profoundly Christian, my favorite of all saints, and, uh, but also a Syriac writer, a Syriac being a Semitic language. The Syriac writers having a very similar understanding of how work, words work, mm. how language operates, how, what the agency of it. So it, in a way, St. Isaac sort of wooed me back to my faith, and then I, I realized that, well, there are Christians <laughs> who don't read the way that I was taught, but who read this way. And I thought, well, those can be my people, and those are the people for whom I can write. And I think for a lot uh, of people who enjoy the poetry that you both write, they're looking for those helpmates and peers yeah. who understand it, because... As you say, if, if the scripture doesn't fit the three points of the sermon, it's overlooked or skipped. Yeah. And, uh, and yet what we have as an example is, and then the two men are walking to Emmaus and exactly. bump into a stranger. I, I was about, about to say that because I thought yeah. Scott's key word in everything you were just saying there was the word open. Uh, yeah. He opened the scripture. Exactly. So, of course, that is exactly what happens on the road to Emmaus. Open their eyes. And now I did, explore their eyes. Did, and did our hearts not burn within us yeah. as he opened the scriptures? scriptures. Yeah, and so much, well, there can be a kind of preaching which closes the scriptures. Uh, the, the Scottish mystic poet, 20th century poet Edwin Muir, you know, wrestled with that again because he had like bad church as a kid. Mm. And he wrote about what he, he said, Calvin's Kirk crowning the barren bay. And he says, he said about that, he said, the word made flesh is here made word again. The word made word in flourish and arrogant crook, you know, mm. God, three angry letters in a book. So he needed to, oh. but he then goes on to say, there's better gospel in man's natural tongue. Mm. And he realized there was a way past that deadening language. I mean, really, Paul had it to begin with when he said, you know, you know, distinguish between tagrama and tanuma. So the letter killeth, right. but the spirit giveth life. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's, that's that opening. Yeah. And I certainly think that we as poets, when you write a poem, you are expecting people to have pleasure in opening the poem. Mm. The poem must, even if it seems closed when they first encounter it, it has to be openable. It has to invite opening. The way that you see scripture is very different than what we see in a lot of Christian mm. circles. And, uh, and I think that that's what enlivens, that, that inspires the type of poetry that you but, have. But the way that we're seeing scripture is not some new invention or newfangled no. thing or some kind of quite, you know, tricksy postmodernism. It's actually it's a, ancient. the oldest of things. Yeah, yeah it's ancient. Yeah. You know, I, I remember I came upon this book in grad school that had to do with, uh, I think it was called The Slayers of Moses, Suzanne Handelman. And she was writing about, uh, oh, I think Roland Barthes, 
Jacques Derrida, Derrida and ostensibly she was, the book was about each of these people. But when you open the book and you see her chapter titles, Reb Derrida. Mm, uh, <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the uh, rabbi. Wait, because because <laughs> what, what, what she pointed out in her introduction, which was worth the price of admission to the book, was that this thing we're calling postmodern theory is old as any thought about language. And, mm. and the practice of opening the text or decentering the text or approaching it ready for it to make differently with you mm. or inviting you to make with the text a new thing, that's, that's rabbinic. Mm -hmm. And that has been going on as long as there was a temple or a synagogue. And it's interesting, uh, drawing on Malcolm's recent book about uh, Coleridge, Mariner, where Coleridge was seen by many as the grandfather of literary criticism. Yeah. But he was also hearkening back to this idea of where that nature is intelligible, yeah. that, that it actually yeah. was the language of God, and this is how God yeah. spoke and, and yeah, poetry and, and wrestling with that ambiguity was not, yeah. it wasn't a problem to be solved, but a mystery to be yeah. entered. And also, he, one of, he was, Coleridge, one of his Coleridge identified as a fundamental problem with the sort of reductive materialism that was beginning mm. to uh, accumulate in his day, was that it's, it presupposed that the mind, the perceiving mind, for that matter, the reading mind, mm. was passive. And right. that it just lay there like a, and the stuff kind of, the particles yeah, shone fell upon and then they just, yeah. you know, and... There's a great bit where he, he's an amazing letter from Coleridge to a friend of his, Tom Poole, and he's, he says he's been reading Newton's Optics, yeah. which is like, oh, yeah, <laughs> like how many people actually read Newton's Optics? <laughs> and he says, you know, I'm very impressed by the, the minuteness of his observations and the delicacy of his experiments, and, and as far as they go in these small observations, but mind in Newton's system is, a, is passive, a lazy looker-on on events, mm. but... If the mind be not passive, if it be active and shaping, if it be made in the image of God and the maker and shaper, then there are grounds for believing that any system built on the passiveness of the mind is false as a system. Right. Mm. I mean, that's pretty extraordinary to say. Now, of course, a few centuries later, you know, Heisenberg and uh, the whole conversation, <laughs> sure. actually, on. no, the yeah. observer <laughs> makes a difference, you know. Yeah. But, but Coleridge was so astonished by the power of the mind to make the world intelligible and the fact that we had an active shaping part and yet there was something really there that was mm -hmm. also being given. Mm -hmm. For him, logos, the word logos was really important and he began to see that in John's gospel there was a logos that had spoken it all into being but there was also that same logos was a light that lightens everyone that comes into the world and he began to think of the cosmos itself as not a bunch of data to be analysed but an uttered poem, and that we weren't going to get even nature itself unless we recognised that the poet God was speaking it to us and that the poet God was standing in us or beside us encouraging us to read it with this active with shaping mind. Yeah. And, and that's true of how we read poetry, but Coleridge wanted to say it's true of how we read the scripture and it's true of how we read the world. One of the things I want to next talk to you about, if I may, is, is about, the, as you said, the way that we see the world around us. 
And when I read both of your poetry, I, I, I have a sense uh, that you see time differently than a lot of other poets. In the collection of your poem, Slow Pilgrim, I want to draw on one of the poems that actually uses the term Slow Pilgrim. So the poem Mitania uh, that Scott has is, uh, starts adventures in New Testament Greek, Mitania. And it ends with this. The heart's Mitania, on the other hand, turns without regret, turns not so much away as toward, as if the slow pilgrim has been surprised to find that sin is not so bad as it is a waste of time. And that's where I thought, Scott, a lot of your poetry has been that sin is not so bad as it is a waste of time. And, and time really matters to you. And, yeah. and, and Malcolm, you, time matters. The Absolutely. fact that you wrote an entire liturgical year yeah. says time matters. Yeah, and it's that, that those moments, C.S. Lewis has that lovely bit in, in the Screwtape Letters where he talks about how we can get sidelined into nostalgia and waste our time and energy on that or, or either hope or fear for the future, you know. And he has that, you know, the past is frozen and no longer flows, you know, the future has not happened, but the present is all lit up with golden rays, you know. The, the present is the point at which time touches eternity. So one of the things about being in time is that we have every moment fresh and every moment has the possibility of touching eternity. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, we just get a glimpse for a moment of a fullness that we don't yet enjoy. We genuinely don't yet enjoy. We get sort of time rationed to us now. We always lose a bit and gain a bit. We haven't got the fullness of it. But Christ comes in the fullness of time. And he is it. So I love the line in Eliot, when Eliot in Four Quartets is trying to to get to that moment and how time suddenly touches. And he is a, it's just great poetry. He goes, Quick, now, here, now, <laughs> always, you know, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And then he says, at he says, this is go back to your line about mm. sin is not so much, you know, not so bad as a waste of time. Mm. And it says, ridiculous, mm. the waste, sad time, mm. stretching before and after. Mm. Those full moments, you know, a lifetime burning in every moment, says, suddenly reveal the way... We've allowed a time which could have been rich to become a wasteland. And, right. and this is my sense of the great crime of our time spending or, or mm -hmm. squandering, is that, as Malcolm says, every moment can partake of that. Eternal. That mm. eternal outside yeah. of time. Right. Mm. I dare say every moment does. Mm. And the, the problem is how we could know that and how we so often don't notice that mm. and my sense is that my own experience learning to pray a little better, mm. more efficaciously mm. has been key to noticing how every moment partakes mm. inevitably it must all of these mm. yeah moments um that comprise our days yeah. are are necessarily Adjacent to touching. Yeah. yeah, the biblical type, as it were, the icon in the kind of pictures that Scripture give us of that, what you're talking about there, Scott, that moment, is the moment of transfiguration, yeah. mm. where they climb the mountain. And all the moments of meeting, because Moses and, Moses and Elijah are there, because their moment and Jesus' moment in the eyes of eternity is at this point the same moment. Mm. Right. So I just, can I just throw in some lines from my trans because it has this question about time. This is transfiguration. So for that one moment in and out of time, on that one mountain where all moments meet, the daily veil that covers the sublime in darkling glass fell, dazzled at his feet. 
Mm. And that's why the mountain is so important because it's like all the paths going up to that right. single point. But I, having said that, I, I wouldn't want people like listening to this or thinking it through sort of to beat themselves up and go like, why don't I live a lifetime burning in every moment? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Why do I just... Well, we were sent down like, back to the valley you know, to, be, to work well, exactly. that out. So the point, the other thing about all of these is that it's gift. Everything is gift. Yeah. So it's not a question of I've got to work hard with some kind of profound concentration to make this thing happen. But I do have to be open to it. Yeah. I do have to be prepared to look for it. One of the things that when I came back to faith, and I, this is why Coleridge is a great romantic poet, returning to a full Christian faith is so important to me, is I got those moments in poetry. But because when I was reading, you know, the full, I was just, you know, like completely romantic, you know, sort of Shelley and Keats guy, you know, just, I got the impression that these moments of transfiguration were tiny little things that were vouchsafed occasionally to exceptional people and that they bore no relation to each other. They were just these little gold moments. You know, Wordsworth called them the spots of time. Mm -hmm. And the best you could hope for was to have one or two in your lifetime and the rest of it was just, you know, that's the way it is. So the discovery that these glints are not isolated exceptions or anomalies. They're little bits of a golden string, a golden thread that's mm -hmm. actually running through everything. And they're all connected and they're all part of the same thing. And they are actually the real thing. That the other stuff is a veil and it will be removed. I will take away the veil from the nations, you know, says the Lord on that day, you know. So that gives me hope. I mean, I'm doing a thing here at the Glen about vision and hope, how relation between poetry, vision and hope. And I think hope is the thing that's in, least, in the shortest supply at the moment because we do live in dark times and strangely troubled and, and, and kind of confusing and uncertain times. And we can lose hope. And one of the ways in which we'll lose hope is to, is to assume that what we're living through in these shadowed valleys is the default setting and the norm. Right. And that these moments of delighted glory are, are the last traces of something that's going Exactly the reverse is the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What we actually see, that's why when the guy said it's a misplaced resurrection narrative, I got that it was a resignation. That all the things we ever see of that glimpse and glory are messages from the future. They're not survivals of the past. They're the fullness and glory that is coming, breaking in, giving us a little glimpse before it. You know, there's like Tom Wright has that great thing in it that Jesus is the end in the middle. You know, <laughs> yeah. he's, you know. So that, that's what hope is, the realisation that these things are not just some little false glimmer. Everything else is aberration. Yeah. That, that's the actual. Yeah. And we tolerate and suffer through yeah. the aberrant, the failure to see. And yet uh, uh, we do. That is, that is our, our condition. That is our failure. In your poem, The Priest Confesses, I'll tell you now, I never thought my life would come to this. My heart and mind are separate as two stones. And for so many people, um, whether Christian or not, they feel that. And Malcolm, mm. what you're talking about is the hope that, that move goes beyond that. Mm. It recognizes it. Yeah. It's not mere optimism, yeah. Yeah. which says, oh, no, everything will get better. Yeah. No, Nor nostalgia. Yeah, yeah that, that heart and head thing is really important, that yeah. distinction. Um, there's a great thing in, in Coleridge's biography, Literaria, when he's talking about going through desert wastes, going through a really sandy place. And he, he would just occasionally stop and read the mystics. And he said, the reading of these mystics served to keep alive the heart in the head. You know, mm. and that 
that was the best he could do. Eventually, he would he would be able to think from the heart and pray from the heart. But at least for a while, they kept alive the heart and the head. We are in a culture that has split those two things up, really. more earnest prayer of Christ. It comes out of my sort of fascination with Midrash. You look at the scriptures for the moment, it doesn't quite make sense. And if we have in Luke 22, we have, and being in an agony, remember Christ has been praying for hours in Gethsemane. And at a certain point, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, which set up the sort of puzzlement about, well, what was he doing before that? Right. Yeah. His last prayer in the garden began, as most of his prayers began, in earnest certainly, but not without distraction, an habitual, what, distance? Well, yes, a sort of distance, or a mute remove from the genuine distress he witnessed in the endlessly grasping hands of multitudes, and often enough in his own embarrassing circle of intimates. Even now, he could see these where they slept, sprawled upon their robes or wrapped among the arching olive trees. Still, something new, unlikely, uncanny, was commencing as he spoke. As the divine in him contracted to an ache, a throbbing in the throat, his vision blurred, his voice grew thick and unfamiliar, his prayer, just before it fell to silence, became uniquely earnest. And in that moment, perhaps because it was so new, he saw something, had his first taste of what he would become. First pure taste of the body and the blood. Into hell and out again. It's an ekphrastic, so you, yeah. I hope that you would imagine the anastasis uh, icon, which is, uh, you know, it's uh, anastasi is our a name for the Pascha, the resurrection. But, it, but, uh, so it's in every church the anastasis icon. But when it's surprised, often to see, well, where's the stone? Where's the empty sepulcher? What do you mean resurrection? Well, it's it happens in the it's the Harlan, the our anastasi tradition is. Ours. It's our resurrection. Right. So, into hell and out again. In this Byzantine inflected icon of the resurrection, the murdered Christ is still in hell. The chief issue being that this resurrection is of our aged parents and all their poor relations. We find him, as we might expect, radiant in spotless white, standing straight, but leaning back against the weight of lifting them. Long tradition has him standing upon two crossed boards, the very gates of hell, and he, by standing thus, has undone death by death, we say, and saying, nearly apprehend. This all, the lifting of the dead, the death of death, his stretching here between two realms, looks like real work, necessary, not pleasant, but almost matter-of-factly undertaken. We witness here a little sheepishness, which death has taught both mom and dad. They reach Christ's proffered hands, and everything about their affect speaks, centuries of drowning in that abysmal crypt. Are they quite awake? Odd, 
motionless as they must be in our tableau outside of time, we almost see their hurry. And isn't that their shame which falls away? They have yet to enter bliss, but they rise up, eager and a little shocked, to find their bodies capable of this. Oh, that's so beautiful. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the things when I'm talking about time as it matters, as I was saying, it's not just the content of your poetry, but it's also the form of your poetry. Mm. Both of you have recorded poetry, and both of you, I'm sure, have heard back from listeners who are also readers mm-hmm. how important it is to actually hear your time in that. Yeah. You have a very particular mm-hmm. way. Uh, I, I think I heard it recently <laughs> described as some sort of, you know, some sublime stutter that you have that captures... I believe a it rhythm. was a considered stutter. Yeah. <laughs> was it? Yeah. Measure. A measure. Okay. measure. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I was just more effusive than some others. <laughs> but it, 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 the, the stutter itself that I'm doing it myself now, <laughs> fine. The stutter itself is the stutter of life, that we aren't in a simple progress, but yeah. that we pause yeah. and then we rush forward and then almost seem to take a step back. And... Yeah. You're, you're even calling on Adam and Eve there yeah. and, and I, how they're pulled out. Yeah. I know you don't mean me to speak to that, but I do want yeah, to speak to I that because in, in my thinking, when I perform the poem, I really want the listener to dwell on the word the way I dwelt on the words yes. as I was making yeah. the poem. You know, you don't write sentences. You write right. passages and revise and you move along. I mean, it really is a kind of slow progress mm. to the end of a line. Yeah. And, and I, I guess I, w- I want people to participate in, mm-hmm. in that journey and then have all the little glimpses of all the flashes of other thought mm-hmm. that the syntax would maybe shut down if you got the whole sentence finished too quickly. But if you mm-hmm. hear a piece of the sentence and then a piece of the sentence, the listener can also make with the mm-hmm. poem. And, and that's, that's really key to my reading of other people's poems. And that's what I hope to... It's also the there in the syntax of your poems quite a lot because one of the things I've noticed about your style is that you quite often have things in parenthesis. Mm. Like you start, there's a sentence, which is a clear sentence, which is going somewhere and, and is given its form by its end and you know it's going. But you interject, you qualify, and then you return to the thread. And mm. I notice when you read, you move your head when you do that. You oh. kind of do this. <laughs> and I, I think that is itself a kind of mimesis of, mm. of our life, that we know... Kind of once we've understood the resurrection, we know the conclusion of the sentence, and that you know, <laughs> at the end of every sentence is a new beginning, as Eliot says. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we are living, you know, to quote David Jones, in parenthesis. You know, we're kind mm-hmm. of these other clauses yeah. come in, which we have to navigate in order to get back to the sentence that we were speaking. Yeah. And I notice you do that; you permit these things. And they're a part of the shaping of the poem. They were key to the... Yeah, they are. Yeah. yeah. So, But it's very interesting actually watching you read because you're... I've never been able moves. to do that. Yeah, you know, you haven't. That's why I'm telling you. So I don't know, this may not be the moment yeah. for you to end, but, but it was... So my first sort of awareness of you and your poetry was through... It was this, just in this church in the centre of Cambridge. Somebody read that mm. as part of a discussion right. of what does the harrowing of hell mean, mm. you know, and it was just it was hugely clarifying... Then I heard you read, you know, on, on Orcas Island. So when um, I, I wrote the poem I wrote for you for your birthday, right. that sort of, uh, that harrowing of hell, 
became important. And I, by that time, I think Idiot Psalms had just come out. Mm. So, like, I heard you reading Idiot Psalms, and um, I got, bought the book, and that was kind of my first way into you. I got sort of a slow pilgrim afterwards. Uh, so, I'll just read this. Yeah, absolutely. Later. So, okay. There's a chance to read. I don't think I've ever had the occasion to read this poem actually to you. Let's do that. I sent it for your birthday. So, <laughs> okay, this is in Parable and Paradox, which is called yeah, Four Scott Cairns. For everything coheres within the Logos. Even those afternoons, lost in a maze, a stupefaction in the face of Kronos, when only idiot psalms can voice his praise, everything coheres. Our unbelief makes up the score that underscores our faith. Your poetry makes music of our brief epiphanies, vouchsafed in love and wrath. The man who harrowed hell gave you a map that you might make for us a pilgrim's guide, a mess of desolation laced with hope, communion with a whiskey on the side, as you restore the broken themes of praise. I lift my glass and bless our borrowed days. <laughs> you know, while you two imbibe uh, on just the the beautiful uh, part of that poem, it, it strikes me that the harrowing of hell, that phrase, captures something of what this conversation's been about. That is, there are too many who see only harrowing as a you know a harrowing experience without any of the generative point that both of your poetry provides us. That harrowing. Is an agricultural. It's exactly it's part uh, of image. The plow. It's, it's the, the plow. It is. Yeah. It is. It is only through the harrowing yeah. that one can grow, yeah. and yeah. and your poetry does that. And one of the wonderful things, if one has an agrarian mindset, <laughs> is that you yeah. want that plow to go straight. Mm. Yeah. And you have a talos mm. that yeah, is exactly. permanent. Yeah. You're not focused on a squirrel at the other end that's running around, and and the yeah. plow therefore is chasing something. But you have a keen sense in your poetry that there is that clear, yeah. firm telos yeah. to which you are pointed. Now, the plow obviously has to work around rocks and stones, and it needs yeah. to be uh, sifted is, through. Yeah. But, yeah. but that harrowing is, is, in both of your instances, uh, meant to be a generative exercise. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I mean, the history of the word harrowing is very interesting because uh, it's also cognate with harrying. So harrying uh -huh. as a form in, so originally probably the, the term the harrowing of hell had the primary sense of like making a raid on mm. hell, ah. like he raids hell and all. Right. However, the reason why the word harrow was used about the plow coming into and opening out yeah. was that it was seen as a harrying. Yeah. So, ah, so it was the, the word invasion has both of... So one sense of the harrowing of hell is that like it's a raid on hell to steal back his stuff. Like <laughs> the devil went to the person, the poet right. who gets that totally and does it brilliantly uh, is, is the medieval poet Langland who wrote this yeah. poem called yeah. Piers Plowman. Yeah. So he has this whole harrowing of hell section where Christ 
it, there's a wonderful thing where the devils are thinking, hey, hey, we got Christ, you know, we're like, we've, we've killed this whole thing, stone dead. And then they realize they've bitten off more than they can chew. <laughs> and they realize that the whole thing was, Jesus needed to get into hell in order to bust the place open. Yeah. And like, so the last thing they should have done is crucified him. You know, they, if they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory because they were opening the gates of death to the guy, one guy who could do something about it. So when in the poem, Christ gets to the gates of hell. It's just magnificent. It's an alliterative it's medieval book. So Christ goes, this is the line, it goes, Dukes of this dim place, anon undo the gates, and with that breath, hell break. <laughs> you know, he just blows <laughs> it open and goes through it, you know. So, but I didn't think, I don't want to think why it was, I became aware of Scottish. I literally didn't think that anybody since the 14th century had written a poem about the harrowing of hell. Like I thought, yeah. that, that had just fallen out. So, hey, there's this guy. <laughs> kind of, I need to know who that is. Well, yeah. Mostly reads dead people. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, this has been a wonderful conversation with you. Oh, well, uh, you didn't we, read what? And we are going to, no, we're going to finish up with another poem by, by Malcolm. Yeah, but but uh, I just want to thank you so much. But Malcolm, will you close us with a poem? When I first wrote this poem, um, before it's collected in this book, I actually called it Theotokos, ah. um, which is the Greek honorific term for, for Mary, the, the mother of the Lord. Later, just partly because I was just not wanting entirely to baffle yeah. sort of English parish readers, I retitled it Mary. But uh, uh, this is, this is uh, addressed to her, but it also brings us to the one. You know, the great thing in the scriptures, you really honor Mary, and people go to Mary and they, and they go, Mary, great. She's, have you seen my son? She's had whole business is bringing. So here we go. Mary, you bore for me the one who came to bless and bear for all, to make the broken whole. You heard his call, and in your open yes, you spoke aloud for every living soul. Oh, gracious lady child of your own child, whose mother love still calls the child in me. Call me again, for I am lost, and wild waves surround me now. On this dark sea, shine as a star, and call me to the shore. Open a door that all my sins would close, and hold me in your garden. Let me share the prayer that folds the petals of the rose. Enfold me too in love's last mystery and bring me to the one you bore for me. You've been listening to The Image Podcast, produced by Cassidy Hall and Roy Salmon. Our music is by Sister Sinjin. To subscribe to the print journal, please visit the Image website at www.imagejournal.org. There you can also learn more about all previous episodes of this podcast and find our show notes, links to books, and other resources discussed. You can also access back issues of the journal through the Image Archive. Join us next time for further exploration of art, faith, and mystery.